If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism True or False? The Agony of Deceit The Origins of Muhammad's Religion Spiritual Warfare Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts or Demonic Spirits? Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story an evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal movement, Mormonism, counterfeit Christianity, turn or burn, Jehovah's Witnesses, deceived deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website, www.biblequery.org. Once on the homepage, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Why are so few people saved from the wrath of God and eternal damnation? Psalm 2 Why are the nations restless, and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now then, you kings, use insight. Let yourselves be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun that he not be angry, and you perish on the way, for his wrath may be kindled quickly. How blessed are all who take refuge in him! Proverbs 6, 
16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Matthew 7, 13-15 and 20-23 Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-27 For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the Father who put all things in subjection to him. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-12 Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will eliminate with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be damned who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. In the United States, decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. From the Pew Research Center, 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, down 12 percentage points over the past decade. Unbelief is growing. The religious landscape of the United States continues to change at a rapid clip. In Pew Research Center telephone surveys conducted in 2018 and 2019, 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, down 12 percentage points over the past decade. Meanwhile, the religiously unaffiliated share of the population, consisting of people who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, now stands at 26%, up from 17% in 2009. 
both Protestantism and Catholicism are experiencing losses of population share. Currently, 43% of the U.S. adults identify with Protestantism, down from 51% in 2009. And one in five adults, 20%, are Catholic, down from 23% in 2009. Meanwhile, all subsets of religiously unaffiliated population, a group also known as nuns, have seen their numbers swell. Self-described atheists now account for 4% of U.S. adults, up modestly but significantly from 2% in 2009. Agnostics make up 5% of U.S. adults, up from 3% a decade ago. And 17% of Americans now describe their religion as nothing in particular, up from 12% in 2009. Members of non-Christian religions also have grown modestly as a share of the adult population. The data shows that just like rates of religious affiliation, rates of religious attendance are declining. Over the last decade, the share of Americans who say they attend religious services at least once or twice a month dropped by seven percentage points, while the share who say they attend religious services less often, if at all, has risen by the same degree. In 2009, regular worship attenders, those who attend religious services at least once or twice a month, outnumbered those who attend services only occasionally or not at all by a 52% to 47% margin. Today those figures are reversed. More Americans now say they attend religious services a few times a year or less, 54%, then they attend at least monthly, 45%. The changes underway in the American religious landscape are broad-based. The Christian share of the population is down and religious nuns have grown across multiple demographic groups, white people, black people, and Hispanics, men and women, in all regions of the country, and among college graduates and those with lower levels of educational attainment. Religious nuns are growing faster among Democrats than Republicans, though their ranks are swelling in both partisan coalitions. And although the religiously unaffiliated are on the rise among younger people and most groups of older adults, their growth is most pronounced among young adults. Only one in three millennials say they attend religious services at least once or twice a month. Roughly two-thirds of millennials 64% attend worship services a few times a year or less often, including about 4 in 10 who say they seldom or never go. Indeed, there are as many millennials who say they never attend religious services, 22%, as there are who say they go at least once a week, 22%. While the trends are clear, the U.S. is steadily becoming less Christian and less religiously observant as the share of adults who are not religious grows. Self-described Christians report that they attend religious services at about the same rate today as in 2009. Today, 62% of Christians say they attend religious services at least once or twice a month, which is identical to the share who said the same in 2009. In other words, the nation's overall rate of religious attendance is declining 
not because Christians are attending church less often, but rather because there are now fewer Christians as a share of the population. The rising share of Americans who say they attend religious services no more than a few times a year, if at all, has been driven by a substantial jump in the proportion who say they never go to church. Today, 17% of Americans say they never attend religious services, up from 11% a decade ago. Similarly, the decline in regular churchgoing is attributable mainly to the shrinking share of Americans. Greetings and welcome once again to our program. I'm Larry Wessels, Director of Christian Answers, and I want to thank you for being with me today for this Christian Answers Presents program. Well, the topic I have in mind today for this presentation is called, Are There Few or Many that are going to be saved from the wrath of God and go to heaven. Are few going to heaven or are many going to heaven? That's the question. You can see on the screen there, here's an article by Gene Edward Viff on unbelieving born-agains. Research continues to reveal a steady theological collapse among professing Christians in America. Reading down the article, secularists, liberals, and Muslims do not need to fear conservative Christians, says Dave Siflet in the Wall Street Journal. Christians, he says, are not all that interested in converting the heathen. They don't really believe that there is such a thing as the heathen, tending to believe instead that every religion is equally valid. Even the most feared of Christians, the dread born-agains, who have cost the high priest at People for the American Way so much sleep, often embrace the modern orthodoxies of tolerance and inclusion over the traditional teachings of their faith. He cites poll data from Christian researcher George Barnum that 26% of born-agains believe all religions are essentially the same and that 50% believe that a life of good works will enable a person to get to heaven. He goes on, though, to cite data that casts doubt on whether some of these born-again Christians will be there. More than one in three, 35%, born-again Christians do not believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead. Isn't that a rather important thing to believe in? especially in light of Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that they do, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, this they do not do, you will be saved. So are they? Over half of born-again Christians, 52%, according to Mr. Barna's data, do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a living entity. In Acts 19, the Apostle Paul came across a group of people who said that they were Christians, but they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. They had to be re-evangelized and re-baptized. Slightly more born-again Christians believe in the devil than believe in the Holy Spirit, though 45% do not believe that Satan exists. 10% believe in reincarnation. 29% believe it is possible to communicate with the dead. 
As for moral issues, one out of three born-again Christians, 33%, according to Mr. Barna's numbers, accept same-sex unions. More than one out of three, 39%, believe it is morally acceptable for couples to live together before marriage. And significantly, born-again Christians are more likely than non-Christians to have experienced divorce, 27% to 24%. Mr. Barna defines born-again Christians as those who report having made a personal commitment to Christ and expect to get to heaven because they accepted Jesus. He has a subcategory of born-again Christians, evangelicals, who meet more stringent criteria of biblical faith. But these amount to only 8% of American Christians, with 33% being the less orthodox, non-evangelical born-agains. Is this rampant unbelief among people who have accepted Christ an example of biblical illiteracy? Or is it a positive conviction that faith is a purely subjective experience rather than an appropriation of objective truths? Either way, this is strong evidence of how American Christianity is conforming to the dominant secular culture. It is all right to be religious, according to the dictates of postmodernism, as long as your faith exists just in your head. If you start claiming that your beliefs are more than just a private mental state that makes you feel good, asserting instead that what you believe is objectively real and valid for everybody, then you are an intolerant menace to society. Many Christians apparently agree, feeling solace in their own private mental decisions and mystical experiences, without reference to the God outside themselves, who is revealed in His Word and in His slain and risen Son. Preachers sometimes exhort people to invite Jesus into your heart, end quote, without proclaiming who Jesus is and what He has done for sinners. This is evangelism that forgets to preach the gospel. The result will be non-evangelical born-agains. New Christians like babies need to be fed, taught, and cared for. Otherwise, they will die in their cribs. They need intensive nourishment from the Word of God. At least Christians are not the only ones addled by their culture into holding contradictory beliefs. Atheists are just as confused about their theology. Half of all atheists and agnostics say that every person has a soul, that heaven and hell exist, and that there is life after death, reports Mr. Barna. Moreover, one out of every eight atheists and agnostics even believes that accepting Jesus as Savior probably makes life after death possible. They believe that accepting Christ can bring eternal life even though they don't believe in Jesus Christ, just like non-evangelical born-agains. Okay, here's another poll. This one from January 5th, 2004. Poll indicates that only 2% of mainline Protestants in the USA 
have a biblical worldview. According to a new Barna poll, only 2% of mainline Protestants in America have a biblical worldview. This is defined as believing that absolute moral truths exist, that such truth is defined by the Bible, and firm belief in six specific religious views, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules it today. Salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Satan is real. A Christian has a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with other people, and the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. Those identifying themselves as Baptists did not fare much better, with only 8% holding these views. Here's another poll on these church statistics, which ties into my talk for today. This one coming from a Barna poll, TBC This Week, on September 26, 2003. 65% say that the devil is not real, but a symbol of evil. 51% say Jesus committed sins while on earth. 61% agree that if a person does enough good during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. 30% of teens believe that all religions are really praying to the same God or or, are just using different names for God. 83% say moral truth depends on circumstances. Only 6% believe moral truth is absolute. Only 9% of born-again teens believe in moral absolute. Okay, we also have another poll given in the Baptist Press from December 5, 2003. It says, Biblical worldview held by 4% of adults. Now think about it for a minute. I've been going through some statistics here of church people people that actually claim to be Christians. Now, I didn't mention something about the atheists, but the the polls I'm talking about right here are revealing information about people that go to church. So we're talking about church people. And when you read things like, poll indicates that only 2% of mainline Protestants in the U.S. have a biblical worldview. What does that say about the other 98%? that attend church, 98%. And then the teens, which we just went through. Well, anyway, here's another poll. This one coming from December 5th, 2003. It says, everyone has a worldview, but few have one that is biblical. That's the conclusion of a national survey by Barna Research, which found that just 4% of American adults have a biblical worldview. Additionally, only 9% of those categorized as born-again Christians have a biblical worldview, Barna said. Now think about that. The born-again Christians are supposed to be the real Christians, the real ones. But according to this poll, of these people that claim to be born-again Christians, only 9% of them believe what the Bible actually says which says that 91% of these people that are claiming to be born-again Christians are not born-again Christians. (laughs) They're just as lost as everybody else. But anyway, let me get back to this poll. Okay, the poll of 2,033 adults was conducted September through November. 
Worldview is a term used to describe the belief system by which a person understands or makes decisions about the world. One of the most prominent modern-day worldviews is postmodernism, a belief system that rejects the notion of absolute truth. This is often expressed in the statement, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me, end quote. Not surprisingly, the Barna research found that adults without a biblical worldview and those with such a worldview had vastly different views of immoral and unethical behavior. For instance, those without a biblical worldview were about 100 times more likely to endorse abortion. 46% of those without a biblical worldview believed it was okay compared to less than 1% of those with a biblical worldview. Around 80 times more likely to say exposure to pornography is morally acceptable. 39% versus less than one-half of 1%. 31 times more likely to believe living together before marriage is morally acceptable. 62% versus 2%. 15 times more likely to believe homosexual sex is acceptable. 31% versus 2%. 18 times more likely to endorse drunkenness, 36% versus 2%. 12 times more likely to accept profanity, 37% versus 3%. 11 times more likely to say adultery is okay, 44% versus 4%. 8 times more likely to gamble by purchasing lottery tickets. The primary reason that people do not act like Jesus is because they do not think like Jesus, Barna said in a news release. Behavior stems from what we think, our attitudes, beliefs, values, and opinions. Barna's definition of a biblical worldview included a belief that absolutes exist and a belief that the Bible defines them. Additionally, the definition stipulated a belief that Christ lived a sinless life. God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules it today. Salvation is by grace and not by works. Satan is a real being. Christians have a responsibility to witness, and the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. The research found that those who attended college were more likely to have a biblical view than those who did not, 6% versus 2%. Married adults also were more likely to have such a worldview, 5% for married people versus 2% for singles. Also, 10% of Republicans, but only 2% of independents and 1% of Democrats had a biblical worldview. Respondents were not asked if they considered themselves to be born again, but instead were asked a series of specific questions. Born-again believers were defined as those who said they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and that it is still important in their life today and who also indicated they believe that when they die they will go to heaven because they had confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, according to a news release. Now, the way he's doing this poll is Barna and all this information I just read. Even his definition of a true born-again Christian is wrong. That's why the statistics are so bad for even uh, the born-again Christians because, let's face it, they're not real born-again Christians according to the biblical standard. 
when you look at the biblical standard, what a real born-again Christian is, it's not this definition at all. It's a different definition. But you've got all these people who've deluded themselves by thinking that they're born-again Christians, which is not true. And that's why these statistics are just terrible. Because even the people claiming to be born-again Christians aren't real Christians at all. Just They're just like a lot of these other uh, people that go to church and think that's going to save them. But anyway, let's, let, let's take a look at a few other articles before I move into some of this other stuff. I've got something here. It says, uh, Jane Fonda honored by Planned Parenthood. This is from May 2003. It was uh, published in the Calvary Contender. In recent years, much has been made of the conversion of activist actress Jane Fonda, but her sincerity was jeopardized with many pro-lifers by her gift of $4 million to help elect pro-abortion candidates in the national election. Now she has been honored by Planned Parenthood with the Margaret Sanger Award. Pro-lifers had welcomed the news of her conversion and hoped that Fonda was changing her ways. But last month's award, the highest Planned Parenthood gives, leaves to question the validity of her conversion. Sad to say, but Hanoi Jane's actions promoting the killing of the unborn indicates she is still fighting on the wrong side. I'm going to read you another article here. Uh, this one is published in, out of Nashville, and it says, Only half of nation's senior pastors hold... Biblical worldview, Barna study shows. All right, barely half of the nation's senior pastors, but a leading 71% of Southern Baptist pastors hold to a biblical worldview. A new study by the Christian researcher George Barna shows the poll of 601 randomly selected senior pastors representing some 50 denominations and conducted in November and December showed that only 51% of the nation's pastors held to a biblical worldview. Significantly, the entire sample included pastors from conservative, moderate, and liberal backgrounds. While Southern Baptists had the highest percentage, United Methodist pastors had the lowest at 27%. In fact, only 28% of pastors from mainline denominations held to a biblical worldview. Mainline church pastors are those in the American Baptist Churches USA, United Church of Christ, Episcopal Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, and the United Methodist Church. Worldview is a term used to describe the belief system by which a person understands or makes decisions about the world. And of course, I discussed some of that in some of the other articles I read. George Barna has discovered a critical issue in the American church today. Many senior pastors do not hold to the basic tenets of historic Christianity. And Tom Rayner, dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions, Evangelism, and Church Growth at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, said, In this age of doctrine really doesn't matter, end quote, Barna has shown us it does indeed matter. If senior pastors do not believe the key doctrines of the faith, the millions in the churches will never be taught that which defines our faith. It is little wonder that many churches today mirror the values of the world, end quote. Among other denominational segments, 
57% of Baptists, that's non-Southern Baptists, senior pastors held to a biblical worldview, as did 51% of non-denominational Protestant pastors, 44% of charismatic Pentecostal pastors, and 35% of black church pastors. Among geographic regions, senior pastors in the South, 57%, and West, 58%, led the way, while senior pastors in the Midwest, 49%, and Northeast, 43%, trailed. Pastors under 40, 56%, were more likely to hold to a biblical worldview than were those 40 and older, 50%. Russell Moore, assistant professor of Christian theology at Southern Seminary, said true biblical preaching is essential to a congregation holding a biblical worldview. Quote, all that a pastor must do to ensure that his people embrace an unbiblical worldview is to stop preaching all of the Bible, end quote, Moore said. The culture is glad to fill in the rest. But I am optimistic when I see churches led by men of God who are afraid of nothing and no one but the Lord and who are willing to shepherd the flock of God with the truth. Pastors who preach the Bible recognize that the church is not just a collection of religious people. It is a declaration of war on the prince of the power of the air. If that is the case, preaching means equipping men, women, children, not just to know something, but to confront the powers of this age with the gospel of a resurrected Christ. End quote. Well, that was well said there by that gentleman. But uh, anyway, what we find by these statistics, which leads into my main topic of this, this discussion, is going back to the going back to answer the, the title of the show, which is, are there be few that are saved or are many that are saved? And saved from what? The wrath of God. So are few going to be saved from the wrath of God and go to heaven or many are going to be saved from the wrath of God and go to heaven? That's, a, that's the question we're, we're wanting to answer from a biblical worldview. Right now, I've just been kind of setting the stage with all these statistics that have been generated over you know, all this time by these different polls and so forth. And I'm not quite done yet. There's one more I want to read here so you can see it on your screen. Here's the question. Are you headed for heaven? In November 1990, the Gallup organization surveyed Americans' thoughts on heaven and hell. The results were published in the March 25th, 1991 issue of U.S. News and World Report. 78% of those responding believe there is a heaven. When asked if they thought that they had an excellent or good chance of going there, guess how many said yes? That's right, 78%. In other words, just about everyone who believes there is a heaven thinks he is going there. In contrast, 60% of those surveyed said they believed in hell, but only 4% thought they were going there. Will the majority be saved? What does the Bible say? That's the question. Now, that's, all this was just to get to the point about what does the Bible say? How many people are really going to be saved and go to heaven? Is it going to be a lot? Is it going to be a few? What does the Bible say? Well, let's, uh, let's go there and find out. Okay, well, what we see here is Luke chapter 13, 
verse 23. Now, what you see there on the screen are multiple Bible versions of this same verse, but just to kind of set the tone and for better understanding of this particular passage, as you see there on the screen, I'll just kind of read down through them. New International Version, and this is just what Luke chapter 13, verse 23 says. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, okay, that was the New International Version. New Living Translation, someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? English Standard Version. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Here's the New American Standard Version which happens to be one of my favorite translations. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? King James Bible. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that are saved? Holman Christian Standard Bible. Lord, someone asked him, are there few being saved? International Standard Version. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? NET Bible. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? Aramaic Bible in plain English. But a man asked him if there are few who have life. God's Word translation. Someone asked him, Sir, are only a few people going to be saved? Jubilee Bible, 2000. Then someone said unto him, Lord, are there few that are saved? Plenty more I could go through, but I think that's sufficient <laughs> to get the point across that the question is being clearly asked in the Bible. And it's being asked of Jesus, who's the author of truth. And so without reading through all the rest of these, I think we have a, a, a good point here on what, uh, what's being asked. They're asking if only a few are going to be saved and go to heaven. Okay, now as you see on the screen there, I've got Matthew Henry's concise commentary on this particular passage and those that come after it. And Matthew Henry is, one of, you know, is an excellent Bible commentator. He's recognized by many as an outstanding commentator. He lived a, a few hundred years ago. But uh, his, his works are still published to this day. All right, uh, here's what Matthew Henry has to say about this passage. Going from verses 23 through 30. Our Savior came to guide men's consciences, not to gratify their curiosity. Ask not how many shall be saved, but shall I be one of them? Not what shall become of such and such, but what shall I do? And what will become of me? Strive to enter at the straight gate. This is directed to each of us. It is, strive ye. All that will be saved must enter in at the straight gate and must undergo a change of the whole man. Those that would enter in must strive to enter. Here are awakening considerations to enforce this exhortation. Oh, that we may be awakened by them. They answer the question, are there few that shall be saved? But let none despond, either as be themselves or others, for there are last who shall be first, and first who shall be last. If we reach heaven, we shall meet many there whom we little thought to meet, and this many whom we expected to find. Okay, now, he has just expanded on these verses here, and we'll look at them. Luke 13, 24 through 30. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. 
then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. All right, so we find here that uh, from reading that passage of scripture from Luke 13 that uh, there's a straight gate and you've got to strive to get in it. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. And if you think you can just slide in there by saying you believe in Jesus or you accepted Jesus or whatever it might be, uh, and maybe you go to church on Easter and Christmas and that's it, or maybe sometimes you skip Easter like I used to do before I got saved, uh, and you think that's still going to be good enough to get you into heaven, you got another thing coming according to the, the, this scripture text. Uh, it's looking like it's going to be a difficult situation to get into heaven from this passage. Okay, let's look at another one here from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Notice here, he's saying many in verse 13 and few in verse 14. And he goes on to say, Beware of false prophets who come to you, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. Okay, there you have it in black and white from the Lord Jesus Christ himself there in Matthew chapter 7. He already says, many are taking the broad way, only a few are taking the straight and narrow way. And then he goes on to talk about all these people that are claiming to be Christians. They're saying, Lord, Lord. They're actually claiming to be like super Christians. Because uh, if you know anything about uh, the way Jewish culture worked, if they said something twice, there's a heavy emphasis, like a double emphasis. Uh, these people that say, Lord, Lord, they're claiming to be super Christians. Like, we're not just regular ones, but we're great ones, and we do all these wonderful works. And Jesus even says to these guys, they're not going to make it and depart from him, ye evildoers. Uh, so we can see already that few that are, there's few that are going to make it, but many that are not going to make it. And then Jesus makes it even worse, because now he's talking about People who claim to be Christians. Now, I'm going to expand on this with other Bible verses, but keep all this in mind because 
it's, it's just right there. It's, it's, it's pretty obvious. Okay, let's go to Luke chapter 14, verse 26 through 35. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, you cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks condition of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this Luke 13 passage I just read, I've said it for the last 33 years since I, be, I was saved. Uh, there's not that many real Christians out there. Okay, you've got churches all over the place. You've got all these people claiming to be Christians and all this stuff. You know, there's over 500 million Roman Catholics with the Pope, and they're all claiming to be Christians, and you got all these other groups. But when we read the Bible, we find it's, it's going to be few. And then you get into Matthew 7, and he says a lot of these people that claim to be Christians there aren't going to make it. Lord, Lord. And Jesus sends them off to hell right there. It's in Matthew 7. And then we get, you know, and it, it says in Luke 13, you've got to strive to get in. It's not going to be easy. And then we come here to this passage. If, if all that other stuff wasn't tough enough, then we find in Luke 14 that you've got to, you, unless a man, you know, just, and you can see it again here on your screen, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Can you see that? If, if you put your family ahead of Jesus, if you put something in your life ahead of Jesus, or even your own life, you can't be his disciple. Even if you claim to be his disciple, Jesus is saying you're not his disciple. And you're no better than salt that has lost his saltiness and isn't worth anything and is just thrown out. It's good for nothing. And that's what Jesus is saying right here in this passage. And if you look back at the, at the passage again, he, he re reiterates and says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So when you come to Christ, you have to sell out. You have to sell out for Jesus. You can't put anything ahead of Jesus. And if that means your wife's going to leave you, like almost happened in my case, or 
uh, you lose all your friends. When I became a Christian, I lost all my friends. <laughs> I mean, I, there's, I've got a video on that. I was a dungeon master. So just put Dungeons and Dragons, Larry Wessels, and look up that video, and it'll give you my whole life testimony. But if you want to lose your friends fast, your worldly, unsaved friends, just become a, a, a Christian in the middle of all that, and you'll see how fast all your friends are going to get away from you. You've got to be willing to give up everything for Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus says in Luke 14, you cannot be his disciple. So that really cuts down the numbers. I mean, that really cuts down the numbers because most people aren't going to make that sacrifice. They're not going to go that far for Jesus. And if you don't go that far, you cannot be his disciple. Okay, let's, let's continue with this because as we've started with those, those incredible poll numbers at the beginning, which were incredibly low, uh, we're starting to see why they're incredibly low as we get into what the Word of God says. Okay, let's take a look at this uh, passage here, the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Verses 3 through 12. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And then the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty-fold and sixty-fold and a hundred-fold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given a secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Okay, so as we look at this parable, it's, it's really kind of a terrifying parable once you understand what he's really saying. Once again, this parable is basically talking about people who claim to be Christians. I mean, and, and Jesus is showing by this parable that these people that are claiming to be Christians, most of them aren't going to make it. You've got, you've got four types there. And the three out of these four types aren't going to make it. They're not going to make it to the promised land. <laughs> because why? You know, the one seed falls on stony ground. And, uh, there's no place for it to, to grow up in, no, no soil or anything. And then the birds come and they eat it up and it's gone. Uh, and, then, and then you've got the other types that, that fall in the uh, shallow soil and, and thorns and bushes and it cares and, you know, things of life choke it out and it dies and people give up their faith or they let something else get in the way of their faith. And so they forsake the faith. And there's only one type out of these, these four that actually makes it. And that's the one on the good soil. And they're the ones that are sold out for Jesus. They're the ones that have given everything for Jesus. And there's nothing else that they put ahead of Jesus. And they're the ones that produce 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. And God blesses them for that. And so, once again, you see that 
Jesus is kind of winnowing out the, the wheat from the, the chaff. He's, he's going to show in these churches which are full of wheat and tares, he's going to get those tares out of there one way or the other. But now, with that said, let's uh, take a look at Luke chapter 12, verse 32. And you can see it there on your screen. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. End quote. Jesus talking there. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. And as you can see there on your screen, Jesus is saying, little flock. He's not saying he's got a great big flock. He's saying he's got a little flock. And why is it little? Well, one of the reasons it's little is because of all the things I've been telling you here so far. We're not even close to being finished. But uh, so Jesus himself says he has a little flock. And we know there's few that enter by the straight gate. Uh, many that take the broad way. All these types of things. You can't put your family ahead of Jesus. Or any of these things as we saw from Luke 14. Okay, now let's take a look at the parable of the wedding feast. Also argues against the notion that most will be saved. Many in that story turned down the summons to the feast. Others tried to attend while ignoring the terms of the invitation. And at the end of it, Jesus concluded, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay. Now, when you look at whether it's a few or many, there's other things in the Bible that give us a very good idea how many are saved and how many are lost. Uh, let's take, for instance, the, the biblical usage of the term a remnant. A remnant shall be saved. Look on the screen there. It says Romans chapter 11, verse 5. Even so, then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Look in Romans chapter 9, verse 27. Elias also cried concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. So the Bible's always talking about a remnant will be saved. And you get that in a lot of other places, but a remnant is just a, a small part. It's not the whole. You've got this whole, but then there's just a small part of that whole. That's like a remnant. That's just a part of it, but not the whole thing. And it constantly says in the Bible, only a remnant will be, be saved. And you just saw two classic passages there by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. The last poll I saw said that those who claim to be born again of that number, only 4% tithe of their income to God. And as we saw when we looked at the text in Malachi a year or so ago, that God says when people withhold from Him the full tithe, that they are robbing Him, that they're stealing from Him. And if the polls are accurate, that means that 96% of us systematically, regularly, with hardness of heart, steal from God. Now, can you imagine any regenerate person willfully, with malice aforethought, setting out to rob from God? I can't. I really can't. And so the other thing I can figure is either people who profess to be Christians aren't Christians at all, they're just playing at church, or more commonly, people don't really realize 
what their duty is as Christians to help finance the kingdom of God. The greatest barrier we have in spreading the gospel across the world and through missionary activities is the lack of finances. It's that simple. And it's because there are so few Christians who are cheerful in bringing their tithes into the storehouse. Now, let's take a look at uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 27. You see it there on your screen. And here's what it says. Mark chapter 10, verse 23 through 27. And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, because apparently back then they thought most rich people would make it into heaven because they always gave more money and did all these things. But anyway, and they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Thus apparently not many rich people are going to make it to heaven according to this statement. But as you notice what Jesus said here, with men going to heaven, it's impossible. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or whatever, it's impossible for men to go to heaven, but not with God. God can, by his power, can get you to heaven, but men by their power can't. So men, whatever they do to try to get to heaven, it's, it's worthless. But with God, things are worthless. But what is interesting about this, this, this story here is Jesus is really emphasizing how hard it is for a rich man to get to heaven, which would generally tell you if Jesus is going to say this and use rich people as an analogy, to uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for than for a rich man to go to heaven. That sort of tells you in a way that must be a general truth about that, that most rich people aren't going to make it. I mean, that's an implication that's, I think, fairly obvious from the text. And there's a lot of rich people in the world. There's a lot, there's more poor people, but there's a lot of rich people in the world. And Jesus is saying, just for some of those rich people to get to heaven, it'd be easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. So that implies that a lot of these rich people aren't going to make it. You know, statistically, the more money you get, the less you give, the less you think about others. Usually it's the poorest people that give the most, at least proportionately. Typically, the rich give token expressions. They never give enough to affect their lifestyle, their standard of living. That's always protected. Brethren, rich people are the people that have this kind of discretionary spending ability and and it just brethren it it it's like a spell that gets put on us 
It, it really does lull us to sleep. And Jesus says to this man, surrender it. Surrender all that it is, all that it stands for, all that it is in your life. Surrender it to Me. You come follow Me. I'll take care of you. You move your trust off of that. Trust Me. Brethren, we're rich. We are rich. We need to come face to face with that reality. Jesus looked around and said to His disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We as Americans are wealthy. Statistics provided in this video show that even the poorest Americans living in the United States have a better net income than most of the world. For instance, according to Forbes magazine, June 1, 2013, the bottom 5% of United States citizens are richer than 68% of people living throughout the rest of the world. U.S. citizens who make $50,000 a year are richer than 99.69% of the people in the rest of the world. U.S. citizens who make $20,000 a year are richer than 96% of the people in the rest of the world. U.S. citizens who make $10,000 a year are richer than 84% of the people in the rest of the world. U.S. citizens who make $100,000 a year are in a category that only 8 out of every 10,000 people achieve in the entire world. Will it be difficult for rich Americans who don't think they're rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus already gave the answer. Okay, now let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 29. Now this is a, a kind of a long passage, but it's an important passage. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now this, this all ties into why I'm reading this passage. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh shall glory 
in His presence. Based on this, not many wise, not many mighty, not many this, that, that. It's not many people are going to be saved because God has chosen to do it a way that the world generally would reject. And by a foolishness, the foolishness of preaching the crucified Christ, the Savior, the, the resurrection, the world is blind to this reality. And they think it's foolishness. They think it's nonsense, you know. But God's already said what's going on right here. He already, he's called the shots. He's going to choose the weak things of the world, the base things of the world, to, to confound the, the wise and the high and the mighty, uh, to show that really they're the foolish ones. William Lane Craig is saying that you shouldn't be using any theology when you do apologetics. You should just use philosophy. Now, what does the Bible say about philosophy? Didn't you just mention something? It's worthless. <laughs> it's worthless. What does the Bible say about philosophy? Colossians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Let your roots grow down into him, and let your lives be built on him. That's talking about Christ. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Verse number 2, 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 through 21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid the pointless discussions and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Although some claim to have it, and they have abandoned the faith, may grace be with all of you. Number three, James 3.15. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Number four, 1 Corinthians 2.13. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. Point five, 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit says clearly that in latter times, some believers will desert the Christian faith. They will follow spirits that deceive, and they will believe the teachings of demons. Point six, 1 Corinthians 3.19, for the wisdom of this age is foolishness with God. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. God will shame the world. Point seven, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27, instead God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Point eight, 1 Corinthians one twenty one, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Point nine, 1 Corinthians chapter one twenty five, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
point ten. First Corinthians one twenty. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Point eleven. Jeremiah eight nine. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped. Since they have rejected the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do they have? Reminders. Point 12. 1 Corinthians 2.6 We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Point 13. Titus 3, 9 through 10. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, quarrels, and fights about the law, because they are useless and empty. Reject a divisive person after one or two warnings. Point 14. Psalm 49, 12 through 13. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Point 15, 1 John 4.1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. A bonus verse, Titus 1.12-16 One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Craig spends his time mainly philosophizing rather than telling people any kind of theological biblical truth. In this way, by minimizing as much biblical theological truth as possible, he can appeal to a much greater audience of ignorant and unbelieving people, even if they claim to be Christians as well. This methodology works for Craig as it did for C.S. Lewis. Therefore, Craig cannot but help to be popular among this type of crowd. A prime example of this is the fact that most of what is called Christianity in the world today is either apostate or cultic. Even 87% of what is called evangelical Christianity doesn't even know what the true gospel is or what justification by faith is. Here's a clip from our video on that very subject with Dr. Michael Horton. But there's such an emphasis in our preaching on getting better, on improving, uh, on moralism, that, uh, that the, the, the preaching of justification as God's legal verdict in a courtroom really is considered uh, quite impractical by some. And so you look at statistics uh, such as the ones that Barna and Gallup uh, and Hunter and others have done, 87% of America's evangelicals say that in salvation, God helps those who help themselves 
and 77% of the evangelicals said that man was basically good by nature. Now, wait a minute. Uh, 80-some-odd percent of confessing evangelicals are saying that God helps those that help themselves, and 77% of confessing evangelicals are saying that mankind is basically good? Absolutely. Aren't those staggering figures? That, that sure that, is. That's hard to believe. Now, I... I uh, you, know, you look at the medieval slogan and, and the, the, the uh, sort of uh, saying that they had in the Middle Ages was, God will not deny his grace to those who do what lies within their power. Well, you know, I ask people what would be a modern equivalent, and immediately they say, well, God helps those who help themselves. Right. Well, does that mean that 87% of today's professing evangelicals are medieval Roman Catholics in their doctrine of salvation? Well, I, it would seem so. I don't. Uh, well, you know, they, there's there's another aspect that fits into this, and it's become so popular and prevalent today, and that's a denial of the sovereignty of God, and mm. and what God has planned for your life, and what God is going to do, and submitting to His lordship. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a. I, I think it, it would all fall under a general human centeredness. We are, we think that we are competent. Give me a roadmap, you know. Give me the time life uh, series on how to fix fix everything in your house. Give me the religious equivalent of that. And so you walk into a lot of Christian bookstores and you see, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a self help section that is the bookstore and maybe a few uh, theology books right. um, tossed over to the side. You look at the Bibles, study Bibles that are coming out. What are they called? Life application. Um, uh, uh, women's application, men's application, Bible for truckers, Bible for <laughs> for dentists. I mean, it's becoming increasingly ridiculous how everybody's clamoring for application, but there's nothing to apply anymore. There's no doctrine. As you see by my header there, the heathen of the world are lost and already on their way to hell. Now, under on the header there, you see there's plenty of verses to prove this. You can see there Ezekiel 33, 8 and 9, Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, John chapter 3, verse 36, John chapter 6, 53, John 14, 6, John 15, 5, John 17, 3, Acts 4, 12, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Romans 2, 12, Romans 10, 13 through 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Hebrews 11, 6, 1 John 5, 12. Those verses prove that the heathen are lost. In other words, a heathen is someone who doesn't even claim to believe in Jesus Christ, doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't know the gospel. Uh, when we look around at the world, at all the world religions, you've got Buddhists, you've got Hindus, you've got Sikhs, you've got Muslims, you've got uh, animistic religions where they worship trees and, and, and rocks, and they think their ancestors live in, live in these rocks and trees as they're departed spirits and they pray to these things you got all these weird religions all over the world well those are the heathen those are the guys that don't even accept anything the bible has to say and in a lot of cases don't even know about it well the bible already says they're all lost and they were and they were without excuse that goes back to romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 they're without excuse even if they never heard the gospel because god by the creation has made plain made things plain to them that they should understand that there is a God. Uh, and then all those other verses tie in with that. But anyway, even if you 
just go back to the Old Testament for a minute, because everything I just read there on that chart was from the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament? We're talking about the heathen now. Uh, the Bible clearly says they're lost and they're not going to make it. They're going to go to hell. Most people don't accept that, but that's what the Bible says. So what about the Old Testament? Well, you really go back to the first five books of the Pentateuch of Moses, where you know he's writing Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, you've got those, those Deuteronomy, those, those first five books of the Bible uh, written by Moses, and it tells you about the Exodus from Egypt, how uh, Moses is leading the Israelites out of the house of bondage and bringing them into the promised land, which they eventually go into with Joshua. Uh, but as we, 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 we ponder that whole situation, and we're going to get into a little more detail, here's another verse you need to ponder. And why did God choose those Israelites there in Egypt over all these other people on the face of the earth, the heathen that I was just referring to? You've got the Egyptians, you've got the Amalekites, the uh, the uh, the Jebusites, the, uh, all the other ites that are out there, uh, Canaanites. Uh, why didn't God choose one of these people? Well, God tells you why in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. You can see it on your chart, and here's what it says. For thou art unholy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now this part is key, so pay attention. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor chose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondsmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Okay, thus we have seen so far that Jesus says that many of those who claim to be following him will be rejected by God. Okay, so there's Moses talking, and we already see that God says he's chosen these Israelites because he loves them. Okay, he loves them. That's why he's chosen them. And he says they're the fewest of all the people on the face of the earth. And the rest of the people on the face of the earth are these heathen I was talking about. Now, we already saw before from looking in the gospel records of what Jesus was talking about, particularly in Luke 13 and 14, Matthew 7, and the other passages I brought up, that Jesus is usually re referencing to people that are claiming to be Christians. And he says most of them aren't going to make it. So here we have this situation where most all the heathen out there are lost. They're not going to make it. And then we have Jesus in the New Testament saying, well, those that claim to be Christians, most of them aren't going to make it. Now, let's see. Everyone in the world that's not a Christian is not going to make it. Now, most of the people that claim to be Christians aren't going to make it. 
So is that many or is that few? I think you're getting the idea. Now, going back to these heathen, for instance, just to prove the point a little bit more, look in Thessalonians, and it's up on your screen, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Okay, we have a classic text here. You're looking at it on your screen. You can see that those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. So if you're not following the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to be punished everlastingly by God. And that includes all the heathen, and that includes all these phony Christians that claim to be following Jesus, but who really aren't. And it's right there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Now look here at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? If the, if the righteous scarcely or barely going to make it into heaven, where are the rest of these wicked sinners going to be? If the, if the righteous are just barely getting in, scarcely, as the word says there. Luke 18, verses 7 and 8. And in fact, Luke 18, verses 7 and 8, this is also a reference to Jesus' second coming when he comes back a second time to judge this world. We know the first time uh, with Noah, uh, God destroyed the, the world with a flood, with water. But the second time, it's going to be with fire. Like it said in that passage we just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, with flaming fire. Well, in this destruction that's coming at the second coming of Christ, we find this reference right here of Luke 18, verses 7 and 8. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Well, when he says that, when on his second coming, he's asking a rhetorical question. When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? It's almost like uh, implying that faith is going to be kind of a limited thing. It's like he's got he's to he's look around for it to find it. It's like, where, where is this faith? You know, and as, as, as we read Revelation, the whole book of Revelation, we find that most of the earth is is going to be following the devil and the the false prophet and the beast. Uh, so, uh, and in Revelation 19, it talks about Jesus and his angels coming, like we just read in First Thessalonians. So, we find that there's not going to be a whole lot of faith on the earth when Jesus comes back the second time. And as we look around the world we live in, it seems like faith is almost disappearing before our very eyes, as people seem to get more ungodly all the time. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when people in the culture, I mean, we used to, here in Texas, we had blue laws. Blue laws in Texas 
were that you couldn't buy anything that wasn't essential on Sunday. <laughs> I remember one time when I was a little kid, I wanted to get some game that uh, my, so my brother and me could play to kill some time after church on Sunday. And, and I was bugging my mom to take us to the store to go get this game so we could come back and play and, and kill some of our boredom with this, this toy. And so my mom finally said, all right, I'll take you, I'll take you. She got tired of hearing this nagging. So we ride over there together. We go in there and they have whole sections of the store roped off, especially the toy section where that game was. I could see it, with my, but it was over there on the other side of the line. And, uh, and I'm going, there it is, mom. And then she goes, well, I can't go over there. And I say, why not? There's a blue law and you can't buy that on Sunday. You know, it's against the state law. You know, because of uh, Sunday being a day of rest, it was tying in with the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, uh, "Thou shalt keep the you know the Sabbath day holy," and uh, so Texas had all these laws that were related to the Bible back then. When I was a kid, now of course they they're just eliminating everything that has anything biblical at all in the laws, and I'm, I'm seeing the whole country just become godless. And then of course there's shootings everywhere. There, there's shootings all the time in public schools where they teach evolution and there's no God. And I think it was uh, Thomas Jefferson that said, if, if you take God out of the, out of the religious, out of these school institutions, if you take God out of the education and religious institutions, you won't be able to build prisons fast enough. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of seeing what one of our founding fathers I'm seeing it in society. You just turn on the news and there's another shooting, another murders, all these things happening all the time. Of course, we already know that Jesus says that uh, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of terrible things going all the way up to the time he comes back. And so here we're reading something about the time he comes back where he says, well, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? And the implication is, He's not going to find much if there is any. And of course, like I said, Revelation will tie into that. Then said unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Luke 13, 23-24 Do you understand the question in the above scripture? Lord, are there few that be saved? Someone came to Jesus and wanted to know if few people were saved. It's interesting that the person didn't ask if many people were saved. Evidently, the person had been listening to Jesus' preaching and became convinced that few people were really saved. When the Bible speaks of being saved, it means saved from God's wrath upon Christ rejecting sinners in hell. For more on hell, see our playlist, Dealing with Hell, Lake of Fire, and Unpopular Bible Doctrines, and Eternal Punishment Part 1 at Sermon Audio, and Eternal Punishment Part 2 at Sermon Audio. Romans 5.9 Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. All Christ rejectors go to hell if they die in their sins. If a person is saved, then they are going to heaven when they die. Romans 10.13 For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. We are saved from the eternal consequences of sin, which is punishment in hell fire. To be saved is synonymous with being born again. When a person becomes a born again child of God, they are saved eternally. Every human being must be saved, i.e., born again, to enter into heaven. John 3 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If a person dies in their sins without believing on Jesus as the Savior, the Son of God, they will burn in hell forever. Revelation 20 11 to 15. Just as the disciple who asked Jesus the question in Luke 13 23, I myself often wonder how few are truly born-again believers. I dare say not many. Let's consider the question again. Lord, are there few that be saved? There are over one billion Catholics in the world who errantly believe that the Catholic Church is going to save them. Roman Catholics do not trust Jesus Christ alone, but rather rely upon man-made traditions and self-righteous works to save them. According to the Word of God, genuine Catholics are hell-bound in their sins because they are trusting in self-righteousness. Romans 3.20, 10.3-4, Ephesians 2.8-9, Titus 3.5. See our playlist dealing with Roman Catholicism, idolatry, and the Virgin Mary. There are over one billion Islamic Muslims in the world who deny that Jesus Christ ever died upon a cross for our sins. See our playlist, Dealing with Islam. Muslims, Sunni, Shiite, Alawites, Sufis. According to the Bible, they are antichrists and liars on their way to hell. 1 John 2, 22-23 there are over 183,000 cults in Japan alone that deny Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world. Other false religions include Scientology, Hinduism, Wicca, Buddhism, Seventh-day Adventism, Zoroastrianism, Greek Orthodox, Judaism, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism. Freemasonry, and many more. See our YouTube channel, Sea Answers TV, covering most of these anti-Christian religions in detail. Why do I call them false religions? It's simply because they all corrupt the biblical teaching of salvation, i.e. the gospel. See our playlist dealing with anti-Trinitarians, UPC, and early church history. Most false religions add works to faith. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Jesus Christ, i.e., that He is Almighty God. See our playlists dealing with Mormonism, the religion of Mitt Romney and Utah, and dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses, Watchtower Society, 
Seventh-day Adventists falsely and deceitfully redefine faith to mean works. See our playlist dealing with Seventh-day Adventism and their prophetess. There are hundreds of millions of followers of Hinduism who deny Jesus as the Savior, the Son of God. See our playlist dealing with Antichrist cults, New Age, and world religions. Judaism denies that Jesus is the Messiah. The same Pharisaical Jews who crucified Jesus 2,000 years ago are crucifying him today. So the stuff you've just described helps our viewers understand what kind of people these Pharisees were and what he's dealing with. Yeah, so when you... yeah and that, that, I think you're right. I think that's, that's, the, that's the thing that Jesus ran into. When he said, you nullify the word of God by your traditions, yes. well, he could have gone on and on and on. Because... See, now that goes to Matthew 15. That, that whole chapter there yeah. is yeah. into that kind of discussion. That's right. That's you know? right. Uh, Matthew 23, you just find yeah. the, 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 the battles between yeah. Jesus and these Pharisees who are really putting their faith into all this stuff yeah. you just described. Now, just to bring it up to date, okay? With, all, with, the, with the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Tractates, the Folios, and, and, and all, of, all of these parts to the oral tradition being codified, some way, somehow, it all had to be put together and written down. Mm -hmm. And there are actually two groups of scholars working at it. There were the Jerusalem scholars who produced a Jerusalem Talmud, mm -hmm. but... The, the Talmud that is accepted with the highest amount of praise and the degree of acceptance in the Jewish community today mm -hmm. is called the Babylonian Talmud. In mm -hmm. 505 AD, the Babylonian Talmud, consisting of the written law, the Mishnah, and the Gemara, were put together to form what we know as the Babylonian Talmud. And that is the Talmud that is with us today. Mm -hmm. And it was published by a family of publishers called the Sonsino Publishers. Therefore, it's called Sonsino Talmud, the Babylonian Sonsino Talmud. <laughs> and it was published by a family of publishers in the 15th century mm. when, when the, uh, the, the uh, printing press came in, Gutenberg, Gutenberg. printing press, mm. which helped Luther mm -hmm. spread his theses against right. the Roman Catholic religion, right beside him, they were printing the Babylonian Talmud. Mm -hmm. The Sonsino family was printing it. And the first edition contained 12,800 pages 12,800 pages. tradition. Coming from the Talmud, particularly the Babylonian Talmud, as you've mentioned before, we can see here, what about Jesus in the Talmud? Right. It says in, in the Babylonian edition, the Talmud records other sins of Jesus the Nazarene. One, he and his disciples practiced sorcery and black magic that led Jews astray into a, uh, idolatry and were sponsored by foreign Gentile powers for the purpose of subverting Jewish worship. That's in Sanhedrin 43a. The, the Talmud says Jesus, he was sexually immoral, worshipped statues of stone and brick, his mention was cut off from the Jewish people for his wickedness and refused to repent. That's Sanhedrin 107b. 
Three, he learned witchcraft in Egypt. This is talking about Jesus. Your references are there. I'm not going to, people at home can see this. 57a says Jesus is in hell being boiled in hot excrement. Sanhedrin 43a says Jesus was executed because he practiced sorcery. Quote, it is taught that on the eve of Passover, Jesus was hung. And 40 days before this, the proclamation was made, Jesus is to be stoned to death because he has practiced sorcery and has lured the people to idolatry. He was an enticer of such that thou shalt not pity or condone, end quote. The Campbellite Church of Christ deceitfully speaks of faith in Christ, but also requires water baptism to be saved. That is works salvation, which is a lie of the devil. Romans 3.20, Romans 4, 5-6. See our playlist, Dealing with Saved by Works and Baptism, Church of Christ. Every Catholic claims not to worship Mary, but the second commandment, Exodus 20, 3-5, forbids even bowing to Mary, which every Catholic does. For more on the Roman Catholic installation of the worship of saints, images, and polytheism in church history, hear Perseverance of the Saints and the Worship of Saints, Historical Theology, Volume 1, Number 17, at sermonaudio.com. The Worship of Images and Civil Authorities, Historical Theology, Volume 1, Number 18, at sermonaudio.com. There are hundreds of millions of so-called charismatic and Pentecostal Christians who trade the Word of God for their own wild emotional experiences and replace the biblical gospel for the gospel of health and wealth, despite 1 Timothy 6.10 saying, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. See our two video series on this. Blasphemous, Charismatic, and Pentecostal Mayhem, number one, Mad Delusional Experiences Replace Scripture Alone, begins one series while Agony of the Phony Word Faith TV Preachers, number one, Mind Science Origins of Kenneth Hagin and His Disciples, begins another series. Even secular humanism, atheism, and agnosticism can be considered faith-based religions due to the fact that atheists and humanists have a faith that God does not exist while agnostics are willingly ignorant concerning God. See our playlist dealing with God-hating atheists, agnostics, and know-it-alls. Many animistic religions exist throughout the world as well, which are described in Romans 1, 18-32. See our video, Foreign Missions for Christ, Preaching to Cannibals, Witch Doctors, and Tribal Natives. All of the religions I have just mentioned account for well over seven-eighths of the Earth's population or more. Keep in mind, besides all of this, Jesus said, and again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Matthew 
who are considered rich people. It's not just millionaires and world leaders, but many lesser wealthy persons who exceed the vast majority of mankind in money and possessions. Luke 16, 19 to 31 is a good example of this in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. See the video, It is Difficult for Americans to Enter Heaven, with Tim Conway. Statistics provided in this video show that even the poorest Americans living in the United States have a better net income than most of the world. For instance, according to Forbes magazine, June 1, 2013, the bottom 5% of United States citizens are richer than 68% of people living throughout the rest of the world. U.S. citizens who make 50000 a year are richer than 99.69% of the people in the rest of the world. U.S. citizens who make 20000 a year are richer than 96% of the people in the rest of the world. U.S. citizens who make $10,000 a year are richer than 84% of the people in the rest of the world. U.S. citizens who make $100,000 a year are in a category that only 8 out of every 10,000 people achieve in the entire world. Will it be difficult for rich Americans who don't think they're rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus already gave the answer. For more on this here, those whom God hates, he is often pleased to give plenty of earthly things to. Edwards at SermonAudio.com By the well-known theologian Jonathan Edwards, who also preached the most famous sermon on North American soil called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God at SermonAudio.com The best way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. God said what he meant and meant what he said. Let the Bible speak for itself. Jesus answered the question in Luke 13, 24 with the following words. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Most of the people in this world are going straight to hell when they die because they have not been born again. Here, few saved from a burning hell at sermonaudio.com. Lies and deception are everywhere. True believers and non-believers, according to the gospel of the Reformation, what's the difference? Now, so from there, we ask the question, does God work with small numbers? We're, we're always seeing a we're never seeing any big numbers anywhere. We're, we're just seeing small numbers as we're going through all these Bible texts. It's always few versus many, you know, uh, things of that nature. A remnant compared to the sands of the sea, as I, I, Isaiah was saying earlier in the passage I meant. So let's go back to something I referenced to a minute ago, which is Noah. Oh, by the way, don't, don't see that, that Noah movie with Russell Crowe. It has nothing to do outside of a name and a few references to the Bible with the, the actual biblical flood given in the Bible. That, 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 uh, that Noah movie by uh, Russell Crowe is nothing but a Gnostic heresy. And it's, it's, it's just another lie from the devil. But I, I couldn't help throwing it in something about to talk about the flood in Noah. Okay, use this example 
of God's judging the earth. So in Genesis chapter 6, verse, verse 8, we find that of all the people on the earth, we find that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, how come no one else on the face of the planet found grace in the eyes of the Lord? But you find that there in Genesis chapter 6, that's only six chapters in on the Bible. So you don't have to read very much the Bible to get to Noah. And already we find that God's picked one man. And he's the only one that finds grace from God of everyone on the face of the earth. And of course, because God has grace on Noah, he has grace on his immediate family, which includes his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. So basically you have eight people. And how long does it take Noah to build this ark before the flood comes? Anyone out there know the answer to that? Well, the Bible says it took him 120 years. And it says he was also a preacher of righteousness. Now, we don't get a whole lot of details other than, you know, Noah's building this ark. God brings the animals. And then when everything's completed, we find that uh, God has them go into the ark along with the animals. And then it's God himself who shuts the door. He shuts the door on the ark. It means no one else is getting into his ark. It's just Noah and those seven souls with him. Now, if he's building this ark for 120 years and he's a preacher, who's he preaching to for those 120 years besides his immediate family? Well, obviously all the people that are on the face of the earth that are around there anyway, they're seeing him build this ark and they, they think he's a nut. Just sort of like people do today with people like me. They think I'm a nut. Because, um, but I don't mind getting that stigma. I don't mind being considered a, you know, a nut for Jesus Christ. I, I, a fool for Jesus, as Paul put it. Uh, because that's what, it comes with the territory. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have to bear up your cross. You're going to have to, sorry, Jesus said if they hated me, they're going to hate you. You're not doing your job if you don't get the world mad at you if you're a Christian. But anyway, getting back to this. Uh, so here you've got the whole world. He's building this ark for years. He's preaching at everybody, and no one listens. No one else is saved, and the whole, everyone on the face of the earth is destroyed. Now, I think there's been several people that have taken numbers because uh, you've got like uh, uh Adam living to be 900 years, and Methuselah being the oldest man living to be more, you've got, they're living hundreds and hundreds of years. And now just think about it. If you've got a, a wife that can live hundreds of years and you can live hundreds of years, how many kids can you have in your first hundred? And then how many more kids can you have <laughs> in the second hundred? And how many more kids, the third, 300 years into your marriage, how many kids could you have if your wife's getting pregnant every nine months? You know, and if people have done calculations like this with all the generations mentioned in Genesis. So there's a lot of people on the face of the earth when, when Noah completes that ark. There are a lot of people. And, uh, uh, but only eight people are saved. And all the rest of the people are destroyed. And they're not given grace. They're given judgment. So God, in this case is working with small numbers. Okay, now, let's move on to uh, Genesis 15, which is not that far more deeper into the, the Bible. We were in Genesis 6 there, and then 7 and 8 gets into the, the, the flood and all that. But Genesis 15, we have God 
calling out a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, calls him out from his, his family and tells him to go away from here and you know, start on your own. And so Abram gets uh, called by God. And then Abram, God actually makes a covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 15. One of my favorite theologians has always been R.C. Sproul, although I don't, I don't agree with him on a lot of those, some of his things that he has, but they're not something that will cause anyone to lose their salvation. But uh, the thing about him is, I've always remembered R.C. Sproul when it comes to Genesis 15 because he says that's his favorite passage in the Bible. Uh, it's because God makes a covenant with Abraham, who at that point is Abram, before his name changes to Abraham. But uh, anyway, God makes that, that covenant with Abram. And then it, everything else stems from that uh, to where we are to this day, you know, because you've got the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the line, as you get in uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The genealogies are important in this case to show that the genealogy of Jesus Christ actually goes all the way back, uh, of course, to David, as we find particularly uh, uh, Psalm 110 and uh, other, other uh, Messianic prophecies. Uh, coming from the line of, uh, of Jesse, uh, going back to Abraham, who I'm mentioning now, and then back to Noah, and then back to Adam. So you, th this is all key in the salvation of sinners in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But as we look at Abraham and his family, he's got 12, uh, you know, then he, he has Isaac. He's got another son named Ishmael through Hagar, who's not his real wife. Uh, God tells him to send Ishmael is not part of the covenant, but his other son Isaac is. So God chooses one son over the other son, and he says, "Well, you know, I'm gonna. He's gonna be out there, and he's gonna do all this stuff, but he's not my in my covenant. Isaac's my covenant, not not Ishmael." Uh, and then Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob has his twelve sons, which are the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, and so you read all that in the, in in Genesis about this line that's being established, which actually goes back to that Messianic prophecy in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman, which will crush the, crush the head of the, uh, the serpent. That's the first Messianic prophecy. But uh, the thing about him is, I've always remembered R.C. Sproul when it comes to Genesis 15 because he says that's his favorite passage in the Bible. Uh, it's because God makes a covenant with Abraham, who at that point is Abram before his name changes to Abraham. But uh, anyway, God makes that, that covenant with Abram. And then it, everything else stems from that uh, to where we are to this day, you know, because you've got the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the line, as you get in uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and going through the family of David, who goes all the way back to Adam, uh, ties in through all this. Uh, so, the genealogies are important in this case to show that the genealogy of Jesus Christ actually goes all the way back, uh, of course, to David, as we find particularly uh, uh, Psalm 110 and uh, other other uh, Messianic prophecies uh, coming from the line of, uh, of Jesse, uh, going back to Abraham, who I'm mentioning now, and then back to Noah, and then back to Adam. So you, th this is all key in the salvation of sinners in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But... As we look at Abraham and his family, he's got 12, uh, you know, then he, he has Isaac. He's got another son named Ishmael through Hagar, who's not his real wife. Uh, God tells him to send 
Ishmael is not part of the covenant, but his other son Isaac is. So God chooses one son over the other son. And he says, well, you know, I'm gonna, he's going to be out there and he's going to do all this stuff, but he's not my, in my covenant. Isaac's my covenant, not, not Ishmael. Uh, and then Isaac has Jacob. And then Jacob has his 12 sons, which are the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and so you read all that in, the, in, in Genesis about this line that's being established, which actually goes back to the Messianic prophecy in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman, which will crush the, crush the head of the, uh, the serpent. That's the first Messianic prophecy. In the Bible. There's 456 uh, Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ, which that's supernatural in itself. 456 Messianic prophecies about Jesus and Genesis 3.15 starts it, and it goes all the way through the Old Testament, leading up to the arrival of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But here we have Joseph, who's cast out by his sons. If you know the story there in Genesis, you read through all that. Joseph ends up in Egypt uh, as a prisoner in jail, and then he gets, you know, God gives him the power to read dreams. Anyway, to make a long story short, it's all there in Genesis. Just pick up your Bible and read it. That's the key. But uh, Joseph ends up being next to Pharaoh in, in leadership in Egypt and is going to save Egypt from, uh, uh, you know, this famine that God's going to send. They're going to get seven years of plentiful fruits and vegetables and everything to live off of, but then there's going to be seven years of famine, so they better prepare. So Joseph prepares Egypt for that. And then, of course, this famine hits the whole earth and gets to where Jacob is, and they can't eat, so they have to go to go to uh, Egypt and uh, to get their food. Well, anyway, we tie this back into the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, which most people neglect and don't seem to really realize it's there, but we get a number. We actually get a number here. And uh, in Acts chapter 7, verse 14, you can see it on your screen. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, three score and 15 souls. Now, three score is basically three times 20. So three score means 60. And you've got plus 15. So basically you've got 75 souls, 75 people. And then Joseph's part of that family, so he's over there. So really all together you got 76 that are in this covenant with God that we were reading about, or I was telling you about in Genesis 15 where God makes his covenant with Abraham. Well, now all of a sudden we find there's 76 in this selected covenant with God. 76 people, three score and 10, three, yeah, three score and 15 souls. Well, when we look at that, of all the people on the face of the earth, God is only concerned with these people in his covenant. He hasn't made a covenant with anybody else. He's only made a covenant with these, these, these three score and 15 souls along with Joseph. That's not many people when you look at it. That's just not many people. But the thing that I want to leave uppermost in your minds tonight is this is this extraordinary characteristic of God's working. What is it? Well, when they went down to Egypt, this people of God consisted only of 75 people. That's all. 75 people. Now, let me show you this. God's way of working, God's ideas are so different from ours. 
we always think in terms of vast numbers, the mass, the crowd, bigness. This generation to which you and I belong has lost its head on that, it's mad on that. Everything must be done in a big way, a grand scale. And we think that that's the way the church has got to operate, and that's the only way whereby she can succeed. My friends, we are denying the very essence of this gospel principle. Seventy-five souls, three score, and fifteen souls. What's the principle? Well, you see, the principle is this. God always seems to work from small beginnings. That's the thing that I see here. Small beginnings. Seventy-five people only. But he'd done this already, hadn't he? Do you remember at the time of the flood? When the whole world was destroyed by the flood. How many people were saved? Only eight. Eight souls. Out of the whole of humanity, eight souls only. That's all God preserved, and from these eight souls, he's going to do these wonderful things. And then you remember that amongst those eight souls, there were the three sons of Noah. But it is only one of the three that is chosen for this purpose of God, and his name is Shem. Not Ham and Japheth, but Shem. This is God's way of selection and rejection again. But you see, it's just one person so often. And then when you come to this great story of the Jews, the children of Israel, as Stephen shows here so plainly, it all starts in just one man, Abram. This is the beginning of the story. Out of this nation, this people of God, the Messiah is going to come. How does God start doing it? He chooses one man, Abram, from the from Ur of the Chaldees, when he was living as a pagan in Mesopotamia. Just one man. The whole thing comes out of one man. This is God's way. Then you, you remember the story of Abram, Isaac, this one son, this one boy that he was tested on when God told him to sacrifice him. This one, everything's in this one. But this is God's way. And then, as I say, you get it in Jacob. Jacob fleeing from fear of the wrath of his brother, lying down that night in Peniel with a, with a pillow, just a stone as a pillow. It's all in that one fugitive. God's whole plan entirely in this one man. And here we are told that at this point there were 75. That's the whole company. Now, when you compare this with human history, and secular history, and when you compare this with the world's idea of the importance and the greatness of a nation, the thing seems quite ridiculous, doesn't it? 75 people, what a nation. When you think of Babylon and of Egypt, when you think of these great dynasties, Persia, Mede, the Medes, the great civilizations and the teeming masses of China, well, it's all depicted, isn't it, in that... Uh, Dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The gold and the silver and the brass and the iron and then a stone. But this is God's way. The thing seems so ridiculous. The might and the importance and the greatness of the nations. And this little company of 75, God's nation, God's people, the Jews, that's all it is. Well, my dear friend, you can find this principle running right through the whole of the Old Testament. Moses, as it were, has to stand alone many, many times. And as you read the story of these Jews, 
You find that even they have to be narrowed down to a small company, just a little remnant. There are many, many instances of this before the captivity of Babylon, and then the whole nation virtually was carried away to Babylon. And of that, nothing came back to Jerusalem and to the land, but just a little remnant. But God knows what he's doing. It seems to be going all wrong. God knows what he's doing. He keeps a remnant. He he preserves a remnant and he brings them back so that the line can be kept pure. And then eventually this tremendous fact comes. And here is the most stupendous illustration of all of this principle of God working through littleness, through smallness, through something that is apparently insignificant. And there you see it all summarized in that babe lying in the manger. A little babe, a helpless babe, can't move, has to be carried, has to be attended to. There he is, lying in a babe, in the manger. What is this? Well, you see, this is how the Apostle Paul describes it. Look at that babe, and this is what he says. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth in him bodily. It's all there, in that one little babe. All the fullness of the Godhead, all the glorious purposes of God, they're all there in that helpless little babe in the manger. Seventy-five souls. Oh, yes. But the babe of Bethlehem. And all the Godhead, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. It's all in him. The world, of course, doesn't understand this. This is not its way of doing it. It's the exact opposite of it. It's a contradiction. Nevertheless, it is, I say again, God's invariable manner. And this is our great comfort and consolation tonight. God has always worked like this. He goes on. What's the story of the Christian church? Well, at first, you know, it consisted of twelve people only. Twelve apostles. Fancy leaving this great enterprise in the hands of twelve men, and look at the men they were, fishermen and things of that kind. God leaves it all in their hands. That's how the church begins. Where have we gone wrong, my friends, in all our folly about masses and numbers and world dominion and authority and power, such as you get in popes and people like that? It's all a contradiction. It's not Christianity. This is God's way. Twelve men, unknown, unimportant, insignificant. And before this great event of Pentecost, there are just 120 of them. But what 120? This is, you see, God's way of working. And this has gone on throughout the centuries. The church fairly soon began to develop heresies and to go wrong in her teaching and in her doctrine. You know, a day came in the fourth century when there was only one man standing for the truth against the whole church, Athanasius. Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the whole world. Everybody was against him. He stood and he stood alone. This is God's way of working. Seventy-five people only. What a nation. Here's a church become one man, as it were, Athanasius, contramundum. And God has gone on working like this. In the dark Middle Ages, with the travesty of the gospel as propounded by the Church of Rome, This message was preserved by just little handfuls of people, Waldensians, brethren of the common life and others, scattered in various parts of Europe. Small companies. They could meet in houses, meet in caves. They didn't have great grand cathedrals, no, no. But they'd got the message. The essence was there. Seventy-five souls, no more. But these had the pure message. 
And then you come again to this striking, gigantic character of Martin Luther standing absolutely alone. And then as we, we move along into here, I've already mentioned Deuteronomy chapter 7. He chose the fewest of all people. And that comes along later, but I kind of referenced to it already, so I won't go into it again. And then uh, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is 1 Kings chapter 18, where you have Elijah on the Mount of Carmel taking on 850 false prophets. One man against 850. You've got uh, 450 false prophets of Baal, worshiping a false idol or God. And you've got another 400 prophets of the, the prophets of the groves, I think it says. So you've got 850 idolaters up against the one man of God. God works in small numbers. And of course, if you read 1 Kings 18, you find that by God's mighty hand, uh, the one man, Elijah, defeats those 850 false prophets and then kills them at the end. That was the cost of losing the contest. You, you get killed. And so Elijah kills them all. And then, of course, that news gets uh, the queen, uh, the, 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 the wife of uh, the king of Israel, Ahab, Jezebel. Jezebel is the wife of King Ahab, who, who rules over uh, all of Israel. And she's mad that this prophet of God has killed her because she follows the Baals and all those false prophets. That's who she likes. And she's now mad at Elijah for killing her 850 prophets. So she wants to kill him. And so Elijah has to flee right after this to save his own life because the, the queen's trying to get him killed. And so he goes to hide. And then uh, we get a very uh, interesting reference here. And you can see it on your screen. It's 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 14. And also verse 18. And here's what it says. And it's talking about Elijah. And he, now that's Elijah, came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then we look down at verse 18. And God says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So you can see it there on your screen. Here God's main prophet in Israel thinks he literally is the last true follower of God left in all of Israel. But God corrects Elijah on the number. Now, you can see it there. He says he's got 7,000 that haven't been in need of Baal. Besides Elijah. Okay, now we know from biblical hermeneutics and study that the word seven has a special significance in the meaning. And you can check your scholarly works on this to verify this. But the word seven usually indicates in biblical uh, numbers as uh, completeness. It's a, it's a, a sign of completeness. Uh, and so when God says 7,000, it's sort of like saying seven times a thousand, 10 times 10 times 10, which 
is also a sign of completeness. In other words, God, if you look at it in that, that sense, God is telling Elijah, well, you're not the only one left. You think you're the only one left, but you're not the only one left here in Israel. I've got these others, and it's a complete number to me. So I'm just basically saying that number may not be literally the number 7,000. It could possibly be symbolic of a complete number in God's mind of all those who belong to him in Israel. But basically the bottom line is uh, God is telling Elijah he's not the only one left. But there's implications here. Here's God's main prophet in Israel. He thinks he's the, he thinks he's the only one left. The only one left. Uh, which tells you there can't be that many out there that are real that Elijah's seen. But then God corrects him and says, well, no, I've got some that you don't know about that, that are my people. But however you look at it, the numbers are still small. And uh, I actually did the calculations, and you can see it on your screen here. Now let's take, for instance, if this 7,000 is real. Now, some scholars have said that at the time Elijah was prophesying, there was 3 million Israelites at that time living there in Israel, about around 3 million. And if you take this 7,000 as literal, well, you, and you can see the numbers there on your screen, you take 3 million and divide it into 7,000. What's the percentage? You can see it there, 0.0023333 are the number of saved people in Israel. Now think about that for a minute. 0.002333% of the population in Israel is actually of God. And all the rest of those people are not of God. But at the same time, the people in Israel, and of course there's a north, they were the northern kingdom, then you got uh, Judah down there, the, the southern kingdom, which is still in existence. But besides those two kingdoms, they're about the only ones that have the oracles of God. They've got the, the, the law of Moses. They've got the writings from the prophets. So they're the only ones that even have access to God. And of all these people in the northern kingdom there uh, of Israel, only 0.002333 are actually of God. And of course, uh, we understand there's some down there in the southern kingdom, but and then all the heathen are lost as we've already discussed. So that's not very many. That's just not very many. Uh, and that's the way it's always going to be. So when you become a real born-again Christian, you're not, you aren't going to find that many real Christians out there anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's a lot somewhere maybe congregated here or there, but it's just to find real big numbers. I, I, I knew this pastor at a place called Christ Memorial Baptist Church. His name was Pastor Charles Bullock. I've got some videos with him, by the way. Anyway, one day he told me that uh, he, heard, he heard some stats about the Southern Baptist Convention. They did a, a survey of how many people actually gave tithes to the church in the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a survey for the whole Southern Baptist Convention. There's a lot of people in the Southern Baptist And so he's telling me about these, these, these statistics. And he says that uh, the statistic for people who actually gave tithes in the Southern Baptist Convention, now this obviously, this was back around 1993, I think it was, was 17%. So of all the people that go to these Southern Baptist Conventions, or Southern Baptist Convention of all these churches that are in that convention, 
Only 17% actually give money to the church, actually tithe or give, give any kind of real donation to help the church financially. The other 83% of the people that attend these churches don't give anything as a financial gift to the church. And uh, so if you're not willing to, to give any money to the, the work of God, well, that's just another proof that you're not saved. <laughs> that's all. So uh, Pastor Bullock and myself conclude that 83% of the people that go to the Southern Baptist churches aren't real Christians because they don't give a dime to the work of God. They don't give money to their missionaries, to the, the work of the church or anything else. They just they just kind of keep the, uh, the pews warm for a little while here and there. And that's about it. And so that's the problem we have in in uh, churches all over the place, there's just not many real Christians out there. Even when you go to these churches, it doesn't take long to start finding out how the church is just full of terrors, as uh, Jesus mentioned. I had a conversation with somebody just recently and said, you know, one of the biggest problems we have in the church today is the unbelief of the clergy. And this person looked at me like I was from another planet. They said, you're kidding, aren't you? And I said, no. In the 19th century, we had this massive movement called liberal theology, which denied all the miracles of Jesus, denied the virgin birth of Jesus, denied the atoning death of Jesus, denied the resurrection of Jesus. And these uh, theologians won the day in Europe. That's one of the reasons why the church is almost non-existent in Europe today and had a massive influence in American theology, particularly in the mainline churches. A Swiss theologian by the name of Emil Brunner wrote a magnificent work of Christology entitled Das Mittler, that is the mediator. And in that book, he made this observation. He said, the problem with liberalism, liberal theology, is that at bottom, it is simply unbelief. And those who embrace it are unbelievers. And we have whole generations of clergy and seminaries that teach that. I heard a man rebuked in the seminary I attended when he gave his student sermon and spoke of the atoning death of Christ, and the professor was furious, and he said, how dare you preach the substitutionary atonement in this day and age? Another student was rebuked for coming to seminary with preconceived ideas. Among them was the deity of Christ. I can't read people's hearts, but I felt confident that the, not just some, not even the majority, but the vast majority of our professors in seminary were unbelievers. I would also guess, without knowing their hearts, that the overwhelming majority of the students I went to seminary with were unbelievers. And yet that's shocking to people. And you talk about the greater judgment, and that those of us who have been given the responsibility of preaching the Word and tending the flocks will be held to a higher judgment. But there's nothing new about this. It was the clergy that hated Jesus. It was the clergy that killed Jesus. The Pharisees began as a group committed and dedicated to righteousness, and they never achieved it. 
they were counterfeit. And when the genuine appeared in their midst, it exposed the counterfeit righteousness that the Pharisees proclaimed. That's why Jesus had to go. He wasn't killed because he said, consider the lilies, how they spin. Because he said, consider the Pharisees, how they lie. That's why he was killed. And he said these things to them. And as he did that, Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Listen. Listen to what he says. Write it down. We'll use it against him. We'll take this matter and we'll get rid of him. They claimed to be religious. But it was a surface thing. A question for you. Is your Christian faith and Christian commitment a matter of the surface? Are you playing at being a Christian? Or is it real? Is it the real thing? I'm not asking you if you still sin. We all still sin. But I want to know if your faith is something that's in you and not something that you just wear on the outside on Sunday morning. We need to ask ourselves this question, dear friends, regularly. Otherwise, we're just like these scribes. We're just like the Pharisees. And instead of being friends of Christ, we would be his enemies. God grant that no such hypocrisy exists in this room this morning. Anyway, that's that's just an aside. Let me get back to my main main topic here. You can see on the screen there, for example, through Amos, Yahweh promises judgment to a nation that has forsaken his covenant stipulations of justice and pure worship. Amos chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Refuting the popular remnant notion which made the nation feel secure. Amos invests the remnant idea with connotations of hopelessness and despair. If any remnant survives, it will be insignificant. Amos 3.12, 4.2, 5.19, 6.9. Yet there appears to be a possibility of hope for this remnant should they repent. That's chapter 5, verse 15. The themes of total destruction and hope for a remnant coexist even more starkly later in the book, 9, verses 8 through 11. Yahweh will irrevocably judge national Israel, but he will bless the faithful remnant, the new Israel, continuous with yet distinct from the nation. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. 
All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Zephaniah addresses Judah during Josiah's reign. There will be a total destruction with no survivors. You can see the references there, but also the possibility, even certainty, of the salvation of a remnant. The remnant is an existing faithful core of the nation which will survive the coming calamity of Judah. Those who will survive the coming calamity are specifically identified as those disadvantaged by the present unjust political system whose only hope is in Yahweh. Again, the ideas of papal and eschatological remnant are in view. The remnant is the basis for hope for the covenant nation. The new genuine people of Yahweh, though, whom he intends to accomplish his covenant purposes. Okay, so you saw by the research there on remnant, and I've gone into before in this, in this video, uh, that uh, we're dealing with small numbers. And uh, now with that said and established, all that, let's go back into the New Testament and just reiterate some more about what the New Testament says on this issue. So there'll never be any doubt. So if you become a Christian, and, you know, I, I, I get a lot of emails from all over the country new Christians that just got saved, and they've got that sovereign, supernatural act of God that's happened in their life. One of their first complaints is they can't find any other Christians. <laughs> they're, 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 they're new babes in Christ, and they can't find a decent church to go to in much of what I've discussed in this video. They can't, they, you know, there's so many uh, non-Christians in the churches and they're asking me where they can find a good church. And of course, I don't live in New Zealand. I'm not over there in Germany. I'm not over there in South Africa, you know, where I'm getting all these emails. But, you know, all I can tell them is, well, you know, even, even myself, when I became a Christian, uh, even myself, I, I had to spend like six or seven or eight months. I forgot something like I got saved on May 16th. I think I finally found a church that I felt comfortable in after going to a bunch of churches trying to, find out, you know, what the will of the Lord was and where I should be. Uh, I think it, I, I, I joined a church in January 1982, the church I'm still in right now. Uh, or either it was December 19, I always get confused. I, it was either December 1981 or it was January 1982, it was right in there. Uh, but still, that's like uh, seven months. I'm trying to find a church and I'm having trouble. I'm trying. I'm having real trouble trying to find a, a real Bible-believing church, you know. And, and so that's why a lot of you out there who are getting saved are having the same trouble. And so you just got to keep after. You got to keep it going to different churches until you finally find one that you think the Spirit of the Lord is leading you to. Uh, but in the meantime, I I, I say to you people, uh, come to our church website, and you can see a live streaming of our church services at dayspringfellowship.org. Uh, and you see it there on your screen, but you can do that and just kind of watch our church services while they're happening and, and by the internet. You can kind of be part of our church until you find a real fellowship to attend where you are. But like I say, sometimes it takes time. But with that said, let me get back to this so I, I can wrap this whole analysis up. You can see on your screen there, we've got the, both Peter and Paul quoted Joel, who wrote, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And that's Joel chapter 2, verse 32, and also Acts chapter 2, verse 21, and Romans 10, 13. Calling on the name of the Lord is certainly more than crying out, Lord, Lord. It is not inviting Jesus into your heart, accepting Him as your personal Savior, making a decision for Jesus, or praying the sinner's prayer. No one in the New Testament was ever told to do such things. Jesus is the most important figure in all of human history. He is God in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Physically risen from the dead, Lord. Luke chapter 24, verse 34. John chapter 2, 19 through 21. And Savior, Acts chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. He came to die for sinners, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, to remove the separation between God and sinners and to remove the wrath of God upon us. I ask you, are you a sinner? Have you ever lied, stolen, lusted, coveted, or been angry with someone unjustly? Have you ever offended God in any way? If so, then you have sinned. Your sin is against God because you have broken His law. Also, because He is infinite, your offense to Him is infinite. You are not capable of appeasing an infinite God because you are a sinner. Nothing you can do will undo the damage caused by your sins. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. That means that your sins have caused a separation between you and God. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. And the result is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. The only way out is to be saved by faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. You must trust in what Jesus did on the cross to forgive you of your sins and not trust anything else, not even your own sincerity or works. Jesus is the one who died for the sins of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the only way to God the Father. John chapter 14, verse 6. He alone reveals God. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. He has all authority in heaven and earth. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It is only through Him that you can be saved from God's wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. He can forgive you of your sin. Luke chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. He can remove the guilt that is upon your soul. Jesus can set you free from the bondage of sin that blinds your eyes, weakens your soul, and brings you to despair. He can do this because He bore sin in His body on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. That those who trust in Him, would be saved. Jesus is the one you need. If you are not a Christian and want to be delivered from the consequence of your sin, which is damnation, then come to the one who atoned for the sins of His people. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Come to the one who died for sinners. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Turn from your sins. Believe in Jesus. Receive Jesus, who is God in flesh who died and rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. As Lord and Savior, John chapter 1, verse 12. Beg Jesus to forgive you, to come into your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and to wash you clean from your sins. Pray to Jesus. Seek him by studying the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Ask him to save you from the coming wrath of God. Plead with him day and night until he answers your prayer. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. If he answers your prayer, then praise and thank him for the rest of eternity. I would like to note that the Jesus of Mormonism, who's considered by them to be the brother of the devil, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who they say is an angel made into a man, the Jesus of the New Age movement, who they say is a man in tune with the divine consciousness, and all these other religions cannot save you from your sins. You need the real Jesus. Faith is only as good as a person in whom you put it. Only the Jesus of the Bible can save you. Not all these other phony Jesuses that fake religions invent. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the creator. John 1.1, John 5.18, Colossians 2.9, Hebrews 1.8. God is a trinity. Matthew chapter 28.19, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Matthew chapter 28, 19, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, and 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. May the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for joining me in this program today. I hope I made it clear that there's not many that are going to be saved. The Bible makes it clear. Now, if you want to use some other religion or some phony thing that claims to be of God and uh, of the Bible, well, it's not going to do you any good. You, uh, the only true God is the one that's in the Bible. <laughs> you can't change what the Bible says. You can't, the scripture cannot be broken. So you've got to go with what the Bible says. So I urge you to start studying the Bible, read your Bible, learn about this God I'm talking about, and beg the Lord Jesus Christ to say, come to him, put your faith in him. Uh, I know in my own case, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I went months praying every day, <laughs> reading the sinner's prayer, doing all this stuff because I, I was desperate to be saved and to know God personally. And God finally did. He finally answered. So like I said, if you keep praying, day, you're like that unjust judge in the scripture references uh, where this woman came every day and bothering an unjust judge. But of course, we know God's just, not unjust, but Jesus used the example and just kept bugging this judge and just kept bugging this judge until finally he said, you know, I'm going to have to give her justice just so I can get rid of her. Uh, so, so just keep coming to God, begging the Lord to save you. And, uh, and like the pearl of great price, you'll give up everything for him. And so I urge you this day to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for being with us. If you need anything, uh, we've got our websites. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, our email address there. If you need to email us, if you want free newsletters, you can contact us. We'd be glad to help you in any way we can. Thank you for joining me today in this broadcast. Stay with us uh, for other broadcasts. And with that... Praise God, and uh, may He bless you in your life. Remember, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Amen.
we, we, we talk about lost people and, and how lost people are just so deceived because they think, you know, there's only like four or five people who are going to be in hell. You know? Hitler, Mussolini, people who do horrible things that end up on the news, but certainly not just ordinary people who live down the street. So we, we always think, we look at lost people and we go, you just don't understand. You don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand the righteousness of God. And you think hell could be contained within a room of this size where there's only a few people. You know what? We're guilty on the other end. We really don't believe that there are going to be that many people in heaven. We really don't believe that there are that many people who get it. We really don't believe there are that many Christians in the world today. Because the fact of the matter is they can only be truly Christian if they agree with us on everything. And how many people is that? If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. And so here we are. I get it. Nobody else does. It's like Elijah. We're just absolutely convinced that we're the only ones who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God says to Elijah, God says to John, and God says to you, get over yourself. There's a lot more people going to heaven than you think, and that's good news. That's good news. This ought to also motivate us toward mission and evangelism. John looks and he sees this number. Do you know what that says to him? The work that you have been called to do will be successful. Amen. That's good news. John looks and he sees this number that's larger than the number of people who exist on the earth at that time. What that says is the mission of the church will be successful, successful and it will bear fruit. The gospel will bear much fruit. As we preach, God is going to save his elect, and there are more of them than you can possibly imagine. So go preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. Because you can't preach to enough people to make this come to pass. Amen? We ought to be passionate about seeing those souls come to faith in Christ. And we ought to be confident about the fact that the gospel that we preach will bear much fruit. Not terrified, because there's so few people who are ever going to hear and believe, but confident, because there's more people than you could possibly imagine. It should also humble us. Because, I mean, really, quite honestly, we we think about the dimensions of the New Jerusalem and we think, man, God's made a lot of space for me and that small band of people who agree with me on everything. We're just going to be rattling around in there. Humble yourself. There are more Christians than you can imagine. There are more Christians than you know. And there are going to be more Christians than you or I could ever fathom. There are people all around you who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. There are people all around this world who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. 
Oftentimes we listen to the news, and really, if we're honest, we say, man, it's, nobody's saved. Or, or is it just me? We walk around and we talk to people and we meet people and we just say that just, no, there just aren't any Christians. We turn on the television and we hear blasphemy and heresy and we just say, man, the gospel's just not being preached. We've talked about this before, but please, let me caution you again. Stop talking about what the church is not doing. Stop talking about what the church is not. Stop talking about where the church has failed. Just stop it, because it ain't true. There is a true church. There are true Christians. There are people who believe the gospel. There are people who are being shaped in righteousness. There are people who are following hard after Jesus Christ. There are churches that are holding to sound doctrine. There are preachers out there who are living their lives devoted to Christ and devoted to the sheep whom they've been called to shepherd. Just because you don't know them doesn't mean they don't exist. You have no idea. None whatsoever. So just stop it. Oh, if the church would only. The church is everything that Christ says she is. Amen? Not only is the reach of the gospel so significant that those who are saved are more numerous than you can imagine, but they're also more diverse than you can imagine. This is something that an area where we as Americans have an advantage. There are other areas where we don't have an advantage. But this is an area where we as Americans have an advantage. Especially those of us who live here in the greater Houston area. One of the two or three most ethnically diverse parts of the country or major cities in the United States. And so we have a distinct advantage here. We think this way where most people just simply cannot. The church throughout most of history and even today, throughout most of the world, is monoethnic. Most of the Christians throughout history and most of the Christians in the world today gather among a group of believers who look and smell and talk the, just exactly like they do. It's not like what we experience in the United States and especially in a place like Houston. It's just not like that. In most of the countries in the world, they don't walk around and see just mass varieties of people. It just doesn't happen. I remember the first time that um, Trey and, and, and I went to, to Zambia. And so there we were, we were. We were there. We had been in Zambia, I guess, for a couple of days. And we you know, were walking around and doing all the things we were doing. And we went to church, to Kabwata Baptist Church. There were Comrade Mbewe is the pastor. And we went to to church at Kabwata, and an interesting thing happened. A white person walked up, and Trey and I kind of looked at each other. Not a word was spoken between the two of us, but each of us knew what the other was thinking. That's the first white person I've seen in three days. <laughs> most of the world is like that. In most of the world, people never see 
outsiders, strangers, foreigners. In most of the world, people only see other people with skin pigmentation almost identical to their skin pigmentation. But here, before the throne, when John looks at the result of God's sealing of his people and bringing them through the tribulation, he sees not only an innumerable multitude, but listen to what he says. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.